Welcome back to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com or on Twitter and Instagram at autofocuslit. I am the publisher of Autofocus, Michael Wheaton. Today on the show, I talk with David Shields. David Shields is the author of The Very Last Interview, which came out last month from NYRB, and over 20 previous books, including Reality Hunger and How Literature Saved My Life. He's also the director of the film Lynch History and the co-writer of the new film I'll Show You Mine, directed by Megan Griffiths. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with David Shields. I don't know, I'm very influenced by this whole idea that that paying attention is the sort of spiritual exercise and paying deep attention is really meaningful. And, and that, um, you know, I'm off of social media and I try not to surf the web so much. And, you know, I try not to check email as much, but I do because just a lot of, of my work life is there. But I've, I've really tried to reduce my number of projects. Like it was almost too many. This film I was, was working on, I've sort of, this film called Burning Down the Louvre, I've sort of put on the back burner. So basically, during the week, I work on this alt-doc film book. And then on the weekend, I work with my film editor, James Nugent, on this film that we are working on called How Do You Know What You Believe, which I think you've heard of. Yeah, and I th- that's a big collaboration, right? I mean, you're working with a bunch of people on that. Robin Hemley, Nicole Walker, Eric Sather, um, James, James Nugent, and that, that we were pretty close to a rough cut on that. Yeah. So hoping to finish it this summer and, and get it out there. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little more about that later. But for now, let's um, switch to the very last interview, the book that just came out, <clears throat> which as, as I've talked about, it's a it's like the impossible interview to do, right? You know, how do you ask questions to someone who's written a book made up solely of questions they've been asked in interviews? And then on top of that, we did the collaborative, like anti-interview questions only creative <laughs> interview thing previously. Oh, that's true. So <laughs> we've run over some of this ground, but... I know what you mean. I think we should, we can focus on whatever truly interests you. Don't feel like you have to go through the paces. And also yeah. don't feel like you can't ask me questions in that a lot of the interviews I've done for the book have been like, are you willing to play this straight? Because if not, that we don't want to do it. I think I told you right. that when I did the buy the book thing f- for the New York Times, they said, you know, we'd like to have David Shields do it, but he has to answer the questions. He can't just turn it into um, a farce, mm-hmm. you know? So I said, sure, that's okay. I'll... And yeah. also to me, I'm not that invested in the whole idea. I mean, the book is called The Very Last Interview, but to me, the core of the book is not that I think interviews are so horrible because I've done a million of them. If I thought they were so horrible, why would I have done so many? I actually, it's sort of like a secret pleasure of mine. I really love interviews, sort of. I mean, I like to read them and I like doing them. And I've, I've been the interviewer a few times. And also, crucially to me, the book began with me gathering, as you know, every interview I've ever done, getting rid of the answers, keeping the questions. But then, frankly, I threw out all the actual questions and completely 
rewrote them. And to me, it's, it's, it's far more of a self-investigation. It's far more, as you, as you know, we probably talked about, it's far more me questioning myself than me laughing at the idiocy of the convention of the author interview. It's much more me, you know, given all the things that have happened in my life mm-hmm. in the last few years and in the culture's life, in the world's life, like just saying, what does it all amount to? It's part of a tradition of memento mori, of, you know, holding a skull and looking at mm-hmm. it and asking what does human life consists of and asking if you have lived your life, if you've spent your life well. You know, it's kind of this earnest tradition that goes back all the way to you know, Heraclitus's fragments and comes all the way up to say, you know, Simon Gray's smoking diaries, you know, and like, so to me, the book is sort of earnest in a way, you know, it's this kind of, it's, it's not so much, oh, gee. And some people took the book as this comedy, like, he's just hilarious comedy. I don't know, I guess there's an element in which that's true. And yes, it's meant to be f- funny and snarky, but its deepest chords for me lie in the area of self-demolition. Yeah. I think when we talked about it previously, it's like an autobiography and the subject never speaks. Right. Which is pretty interesting idea. Yeah. And someone someone's kind of brilliantly connected it to my Marshawn Lynch movie. Yeah. I think that was me, actually. <laughs> was it you? <laughs> unless, somebody else, unless somebody else has no, previously. No, I swear you were the first. Oh, really? That's, well, I, think, I mean, it's so the moment you pointed out, it's like unbelievably obvious, but I hadn't made that unbelievably mm-hmm. direct connection. Yeah. I'm trying to, you know, this book feels very different from the Marshawn movie, but... Mm-hmm. I was doing them largely at the same time. I mean, the moment I finished the Marshawn movie, I was working on this. So the Marshawn mm-hmm. movie came out in 2019. This came out in 2022, a month ago. Mm-hmm. I was definitely researching this when I was doing the, the Marshawn movie. Yeah. And I know you told me when you started this, you were in like what you called like a like a psychic freefall where like you were post-divorce and then you had this kind of like intense love affair and then that ended. And then you suddenly had this idea to collect all these um, questions and to make something out of it. Like how convinced were you that this would be, like, you know, it kind of sounds like a lark, like, hey, I'll just pull these and see what I can do with it. Totally. When did it start to feel like this was going to turn into something? Were you just kind of spinning your wheels for a while? or I really was. I was like, what the hell? You got to do something. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think you captured it well. Like, there's a whole series of things. I mean, whether divorce, entering psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. pretty intensive psychoanalysis, for the first time in my life. At one point I was in psychoanalysis four days a week. I mean, I'm down to three, but you know, and then and my and my shrink is retiring in September, so we'll see what happens. Uh-oh. But it's been immensely helpful. But even the, the format of the book feels oddly like an inversion of psychoanalysis, because of course in psychoanalysis and analysts, at least in traditional therapy, they are even in 
untraditional therapy, the, you know, the analyst listens and the analyst and jabbers away. And here's the absolute obverse of that, in which it's just mm-hmm. a bunch of questions, almost like a therapist or a lawyer, but it's really an internal critical thinker who's somebody analyzing himself. I mean, there'd be a way of psychoanalyzing this book as somebody's own superego passing draconian judgment on the self. So anyway, analysis, COVID, divorce, relationship turbulence, um, you know, feeling a bit older for a variety of ways. Like I suddenly went from like what felt like, I don't know, it felt like kind of like a young 61 to like an old 63. It's like, wow, stuff, (laughs) the ground really Mm -hmm. shifted underneath me in so many ways. And I was just like, well, I got to stay busy. I got to do something. I'll just I'll look up all these interviews. And then I was just immediately bored by my answers. I gathered the questions and then became unbelievably obvious to me that, first of all, I had to throw out the answers. And then second of all, I had to, for a variety of reasons, I had to reimagine the questions. And then crucial was finding those chapters, those chapter breaks. There's 22 chapters, as you know, and um there's a bit of a buildings roman. A, a somebody goes from, you know, some version of me. I would insist that it's an exaggerated version mm-hmm. of me. Goes from childhood to you know early old age, and so I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Other than I, I, yeah. I was just playing around. I thought it was kind of a slightly silly idea. I would try and tell people about, it and they go, "What? It doesn't sound that interesting." <laughs> and then over time, I think through just a variety of the things I've talked about, the book deepened. And then I think a crucial thing was building in, you know, a largely fictional narrative of suicidal ideation. I feel like Mm -hmm. that's a really crucial part of the book for me is that every five or 10 pages, this threat of suicide starts to echo. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, it gets solved in this sort of, to me, slightly comical way. Where mm-hmm. the guy, the the David Shields character is like too passive to commit suicide, so he says no. It's basically <laughs> too too corny an idea to him, too linear, too plotted, too melodramatic. I just thought it was a funny twist. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you'd have to be very invested in a certain kind of melodrama, perhaps, to commit suicide. I don't know, but um, does this answer your question, Michael? Not yeah. entirely. <laughs> I just I think of like the silence of like taking out your answers, like the subject silence to me doesn't seem like a rejection of the interview. It's more like the subject is listening to what rhetorically the the story, the questions are mm, telling. That's beautiful. About that's the beautiful. subject. And it's, it's kind of more like a, like, go on. Like, <laughs> the more wait time I give you, the more you'll reveal to me kind of who I am. That's very Deridian, isn't it? Where it's like, he's like, he's yeah. erased the subject. I mean, I don't, I haven't read hugely in that, but I've read enough to know that is very, you know, Derrida. And to me, it's crucial that the the listener or the reader hear the interviewee's implied answers that oftentimes is a real, I hope a certain music or momentum to like, if you, you know, you, you, you can read the book casually, like in an hour or two where you just sort of th- thumb through it. But I, I want the reader to read it with some concentration where you really could kind of become quite engaged by almost trying to fill in what 
the interviewee said after each question, because oftentimes the interviewer would be like, oh, really? I don't see it that way at all. And it's like, what did he even say? Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's apparent between the lines, like the next line reveals what the answer is. But other times it's not. It, it's obscured. And it play, it's such an interesting trick for a reader, though, too, because it plays on your innate curiosity of like, what's the actual answer? But then it it forces you to reckon with the fact that it really doesn't matter to the forward story. I know. Story. Someone was saying maybe this was also you. It's like, I'm just dying to know what the answers are. But um, I mean, I'm not <laughs> sure I had worked out in every single line. I think there's something like 1,700 questions, I believe, something like that. It's, you know, it's, it's 150 pages, but it's a pretty short book with generous type and big font. But um, I yeah. think it's only around 22,000 words, if that. And it's a short little book, but it's a journey. You know, it's really a journey. And yeah. I think it's, I'm proud. It took me a very long time to think this is, it's not just a one-off thing. It's not just a lark. It's not just a gimmick. I guess that would be the concern. Is it only a, a mm-hmm. gimmick? And I would say for a long time, it it was. I've always loved that Gordon Lish thing of staying open for business. You probably have heard me quote that before, but I just stayed open mm-hmm. for what the book could become. And basically, as my life took on a bit of the feeling of a kind of existential horror story, almost like it inevitably deepened the book. Yeah. And I think I think doing the book helped me, frankly, pull out of it, I think, possibly. Mm. And like something you said earlier kind of stuck out to me, like, because it's something that I I kind of felt in the book, too, though I don't even think I mentioned it, you know, the last time we talked about the book. But it is like in a way, it's a book about kind of like growing older and almost like into like irrelevance as a kind totally. of death. And it's a it's a very hopeless wow. book, but it's. But it's funny, like in the way that it's kind of hopeless. It's like funny in the way that like if you watch on TV, someone standing on a rug and they pull the rug out. Right. It's it's sad and it's cruel, but it's like you kind of laugh. Um, And like I think the question underneath all the questions in terms of like how the subject's taking it is like, did any of the sacrifice I've made in my life for art matter? Like I had this pursuit. I gave it everything. And and now what? Like, was it even worth it? <laughs> kind of like, you know, my single-minded quest. But it's it does strike me how it's able to be funny. And and you talked a little bit about that earlier. But I think the the humor is the timing, like the way the questions rub against each other. But I do think there is, in a way, some sort of link between humor and hopelessness totally. in the way that it can be portrayed totally. a little bit. Yeah. Would you? Would you talk a little bit about that? You know, how you see that link? I mean, you made so many great points there, Michael, like between, first of all, this whole idea about, you know, first of all, what the core of the book is of somebody like myself asking myself to what degree his devotion to art has been worth it. And that as the culture has shifted massively, you know, over the last several years, you know, to what degree does the writer do people want to hear my perspective or to what degree do I want to hear my perspective? Which I think is part of why I erase myself from the answers. Mm. And that um, I think a lot of it came out of um, that book I wrote, Trouble with Men. You know, I think I think I probably would have gotten divorced without it, I think. But it clearly brought to a head, as it were, 
the issues in my marriage. And it's like, wow, yeah. to what degree does writing, is it worth it? Mm-hmm. You know, and at that time when you wrote that book, it was almost like you were completing a dare you set for yourself. Like, I remember in, I don't know if it's just the film version or if it's in the in the book version of, um, I think you're totally wrong, but there's this question of, would I ever write a book that puts my marriage at risk? And then you do. And then, you know, we don't know if, <laughs> we don't know what happens if you don't publish it, but then in, in your own way, you pay right. for it. And so it makes sense that, that you end up in this place of like questioning, you know, like I pushed myself I to- I think you're very smart. I I was just going to make that very connection to the moment. I think Mm -hmm. it is only in the movie. It might be alluded to obliquely in the book, but in the movie. And of course, at the time I said that in the movie, I was already starting to work on the book. So it's Mm -hmm. not like that came out of nowhere. Yeah, There's Mm -hmm. that this line. You probably heard me quote a lot from David Markson, who says uh, something like, how dare he think he could pluck a single leaf from the laurel tree of art without paying for it with his very life. And I Mm -hmm. always would quote it in this theoretical way, like, but now it was like, it would seem very real to me that I was trying to pluck a leaf from the laurel tree of art. You know, someone might think it's a good book or someone might think it's a bad book, but it's trying to be a work of art, Trouble with Men, Mm -hmm. but that I was paying for it with my very... Not with my very life. I wasn't assassinated at dawn right. by the Kremlin, <laughs> but and I forget if it, it was you or someone else who was saying that that they really liked that book. Was it you who liked Trouble with Menela? Yeah, I really like because it's mm-hmm. so it's so yeah. naked. My God. And um, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what's my point? My point is that that relates to humor and hopelessness. I guess. I mean. I'm very influenced by the British philosopher Simon Critchley. I think that's how you say it, about who writes about humor a lot, writes about Beckett a lot, writes about Wallace Stevens and writes about Kafka and humor and hopelessness. I mean, there is something I mean, I'm not sure I can unpack it theoretically right now, but. What is the connection to me? The moment you talk about something humorously It suggests ironic distance toward existence, you know, and the moment you have ironic distance toward existence, you're pretty close, I think, toward suicidal ideation, like in the sense that, Mm -hmm. you know, some cheetah just trying to survive in the woods, he's not thinking ironically about existence. He's just trying to find some antelope to kill. And that's frankly... 99% 99% of human beings who just want to survive either on a mm-hmm. they want to make a lot of money or they just want to survive or they take seriously the terms of existence and humor basically just casts an unbelievably sarcastic and cynical and in a way death-filled view of life because it's like the moment you have ironic distance you think of you know Steve Martin or someone who always struck me as just so death-filled because he's so ironic. I don't know. How how would you explain this humor and hopelessness, Michael? I don't know. I th- I think it's – I think part of it is like in hopelessness, there's like nowhere else to go. It's like kind of like you said. It's like you laugh or you die. Like, <laughs> And so it puts you right at the brink of – 
of that's I don't really know. great. I don't know. That's of really what. great. Like here it is. You only have a couple choices. I I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think also maybe like people just take pleasure, like a weird pleasure in the pain of others too. Like, like I said, like, you know, we watch something on TV and someone gets bonked on the head and my kids laugh. Like, I don't, I can't explain that away. It is funny. Like your kids, your kids will definitely laugh at the funny guy. That's cute. I mean, part of it is like, it's the feeling which I talk about a lot or with, you know, I was just talking about it in, in my class. I think that if you're at a funeral, I guess I was talking about this great essay of Annie Dillard's called This is the Life, which is mm-hmm. – and anyway, when you're at a funeral, you often feel – I don't know if this is just personal or how universal – I think it's pretty universal. You often feel unbelievably full of of life because you're feeling, well, that person's dead and maybe I'm sad. Maybe I barely knew them or maybe I didn't like them or maybe I really love them or – you know, but the – if you're being honest with yourself at a funeral or a, a memorial party, you, you often feel like, my God, I'm alive. You know, blood is still coursing through my veins. You know, and so if your kids are, say, watching someone else get bonked on the head with an anvil in cartoons, they're laughing at like, hey, man, I didn't get hit by the anvil. <laughs> you know, the Three Stooges did or whatever. Yeah, like look how cruel life is, and I'm in my living room. Yeah, I mean room. that. that I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's whole theories of comedy, but about it, I mean, I've read a lot of comedy, every from from you know, Henri Bergson to Freud to Simon Critchley. I mean, I'm I'm really interested in theories of comedy, but um, anyway. Yeah. Well, another thing, like you mentioned earlier too, which I wanted to talk about was like how you take. I guess we could call this found work. I mean, it's your own. <laughs> sort of. It is found. Or it started and, right? as found it's, and then I flipped it. Yeah. And then you kind of rewrote it. But as you do this, right, I mean, a lot of that, a lot of the writing in this kind of work is the structuring. So, of course, like the sorting, deleting, compositing, manipulating, rewriting, that's all there too. But it's like finding a structure that makes it work. And you meant, you already mentioned like um, this idea of like the suicidal ideation as like this undergirding plot. And it's a book that, you know, even in its short chapters, achieves momentum and like achieves energy. Like you said, it's a book you read in about an hour or two. And, and when I read it, it was a one sitting and like there, like I wasn't going to get up. Like there was momentum right. and, and I wanted to keep going. But Dang. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about like the plot of plotless work, I suppose, like, you know, I think not all of your work, but a lot of your work, Trouble With Men, for instance, which we were just talking about, right? I mean, like, that's a plotless book, but the way that it's structured, you still are propelled through the narrative with something underneath. So how do you, you know, how do you approach that when you're working in collage of some sort? You know, how do you look at the structure underneath to still be compelling? Wow. I mean, that's, you know, that's the trillion dollar question. (laughs) I think what you said is very meaningful to me because, indeed, ever since I started working directly in literary collage, certainly at least as early as Remote, which I did in 96, and maybe as early as Handbook for Drowning, a novel and stories, which came out in 92, like I've been working pretty steadily, not exclusively, but close to exclusively in 
literary bricolage or montage or collage, however you want to call it. And, you know, it's been a long education in the form. It's just, but to me, what really matters is that, you know, as I like, you know, I always say, you know, collage is not a refuge for the compositionally disabled, that it's not like, oh, gee, you just throw stuff against the wall and hope that it all vaguely connects. And uh, I mean, I see a lot of collage books and and most of them are horrible just just like most books are horrible like <laughs> not horrible yeah. but they're not great and so for me i very carefully in everything from remote in 96 to this one in 2022 which is what my god over 25 years you know that i i very carefully build in what would you call it patterns, motif building, threads. And this is where my work in writing books kind of connects with some of the stuff I've done in film in the sense that I haven't done very much work in like very conventional, traditional film, but I've hovered around the edges of that. And as part of that, I, I really studied, you know, conventional film structure, which is basically traditional plotting from Aristotle's poetics to very contemporary film structure like Blake Snyder's um, Saving the Cat. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're all pretty much saying the same thing. These five plot points are there in almost everything from Oedipus Rex to, to Groundhog Day. I mean, these patterns are just there. And so I guess it's my slightly guilty secret is that in a work like, say, even as as recent and collage a book as um, the very last interview, I'm very aware of building in what I think of as the sort of subterranean plot points. So that even though there's not like a lot of heavy breathing plot and a lot of overt narrative such that, you know, it's going to be a big commercial blockbuster and like, oh, my God, what happens? Does he, you know, but it it there are these very clear to me. Uh, what would you call them? I mean, just I mean, I'm very aware that that book, Trouble with Men, um, Remote for sure, Black Planet, Thing About Life is the One Day You'll Be Dead. I mean, book after book after book of mine, which might look to a casual reader like a kind of grab grab bag, is actually has very deep, I would call them emotional, intellectual, or thematic switching stations. I guess that was the term I was Mm. trying to think of. Like there are these switching stations and Trouble with Men is really overt that way. It has five chapters and each one corresponds to a kind of narrative arc Mm -hmm. to me. So even though that book, as you say, someone else might have written that book as a a marital memoir, someone else could have written it as a novel or a screenplay, but the way I, I did it was this sort of curious quotation book slash Mm -hmm. confession slash collage, but it's making an unmistakable, to me, unmistakable argument. I'm pulling this argument through Mm -hmm. and I can, I can articulate it quite almost to a like embarrassing degree (laughs) how every chapter is doing something very specific. 
And it's always the happiest thing I feel when readers say, I don't know why I couldn't stop reading, but I couldn't. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) do you know how hard I worked to try to get that undercurrent Mm -hmm. under underneath it it's to me it's the hardest thing in the world it's so easy to lose momentum with these kinds of projects totally and you can go you can drive yourself nuts moving things around and moving this around and moving that around and i mean i totally agree with you the writing is in the editing of Mm -hmm. getting i agree with you every chapter if it works and probably some chapters are more effective than others but each one strives to be this lovely little mini essay or mini story or mini investigation. So I always think of it as micro momentum and macro momentum. So the book as a whole has, I think, some real narrative momentum, albeit of a somewhat oblique kind. And then each chapter has a little or not so little arc as well. And I think, you know, I, you know, I work really hard at it and it's, you know, it's gratifying when people pay attention and frustrating when people think, um, oh, just a bunch of compilation of a. it's like, what? Like, <laughs> do you, you know, do, and that's I would say, you know, and that's one of the ways that, you know, as you know, that you've been very you know influential to my um, writing life. And thanks, of, Michael. That's nice to, for you to say. Yeah. Again. One of the um, ways to me that really pulled me was this idea in a way of like the editor as the author that a lot of the work we do, you like almost in a sense to say like, you could not write something and you can still be the author of it. If you are, if you're thoughtful about how you delete and composite and structure that you can take something else and create something new out of it. I totally agree with you. Like there's a great line I think I quote it in Reality Hunger, and I think it's by Donald Bartholomew, who says something like, the key act of the 20th century is the film edit or something mm-hmm. like that. It, it, it's better than that. It's in, I should find it. And I, I have this line that's sort of, of glib where I say, I think of myself less as a writer and more as a film editor. And I think mm-hmm. there's some increasing truth to that. Partly is that I'm working on film of late, as you know, a film like Lynch, say, my movie about Marshawn Lynch, which came out in 2019, you know, like, there's almost nothing there I shot. I mean, there's a few very short sections I shot, but almost all of it is, as you would say, found material. And all of the art, if there is one, is in that film, is my editing. And talk about a film that has a five-act structure. Mm -hmm. I mean, it film just screams five acts <laughs> that he was born and made in Oakland. He goes to Buffalo, which is a classic reversal. He gets, he suddenly encounters a kind of Americana racism that he had not experienced in the East Bay of California. He comes back to the West Coast to Seattle, which is a classic plot point B. Mm-hmm. And he gets a, the high, they win the Super Bowl and he sort of goes viral as this brilliant performance artist beast mode etc and i'm just here so i won't get (laughs) fine and then there's a classic uh gloom section which is trump being elected Mm -hmm. the seahawks losing the super bowl super bowl 49 and then kaepernick taking a knee and being 
evicted and it all comes and then the finale the uptick at the end is that Marchand passes on as legacy the strategy of silence I mean that film could hardly that film is as hardwired to the five plot points as you know Pride and Prejudice (laughs) but it's done in a collage format Mm -hmm. I just I just I don't find there's nothing that's more interesting to me than that and you know, I don't, I don't see why everyone else isn't, because I just find <laughs> the usual plotting things. I get bored so quickly. Mm-hmm. I just don't get why somebody would want to read. You know, I just don't get it. I, 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 do you get it? Like what? Or I don't know if you share my impatience with you know the seven hundred page mm-hmm. narrative thing that everybody wants to read. I'm like, I couldn't read that if my life depended on it yeah no i'm also a very (laughs) a very impatient reader i think i guess uh, that's it it's we're super impatient mm -hmm. yeah like i don't look at it as um a good thing necessarily about me like my impatience but i just but so but i just have also just come to accept it about myself and like it's like i'm not gonna all of a sudden in my 30s like force myself to read shit i don't want to read like i know what you mean school's over (laughs) right and like let me just be honest about what actually draws me to keep reading something to me there was a great thing like it was a very instructive thing where i was this was shortly before 9 11 just a week or two or three or four i was the New York Times Magazine had heard that I w- was putting together this book of quotes about Ichiro. Yeah. And so they asked me to do an article about Ichiro. I'm saying, like, sure, this sounds great, you know, because it. I thought it would help the book and the book could help the article and blah, blah, blah. And then I turned in this article that um, I was trying to write like a usual New York Times Magazine profile. And I go, like, this is so boring. We didn't... Ha- hire you to do this so you'd write some boring thing like write the way that you usually write like you know give us that shieldsian collage i'm like oh really and then i'm like yeah and then i had a ball and i think it turned out well and i included it i think i forget if it's in other people takes and mistakes i think it is but um you know, as to me, it was such a classic thing. I could, someone else could maybe do that other thing okay, and maybe it would be semi interesting. But this is how I think. It's how I read. It's how I write. It's how I think. It's how I teach. Like you gotta. That's what you gotta do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about your work too is like it's full of um, ambivalence. You know, I think most anything (laughs) you write about, um, there's no clear stance. Um, there's, you know, shifting between stances sometimes, but I I feel that even though your work's so ambivalent that there's, um, there's just such a conviction to it. Like, like that you trust, you just trust yourself. I feel like as a writer and as a thinker to just not be shy i think in some way is i mean you know what i mean like thank you michael that's so meaningful i mean i felt like a little bit of goosebumps that because that's an interesting combination that strikes me as a funny one ambivalence like okay good i think of that as the plot of almost every essay is a writer arguing against himself or herself but then you say that there's a a funny conviction there too 
that, I don't know. That sounds that I mean, I'm glad to hear that. That's very cool. I don't know. It's probably something you feel beneath the words on some level. I mean, mm-hmm. what is it like? Is it this willingness to say remarkably anything? Is that part of it? I think part of it is that, but also it's not the popular narrative style. You don't care. You do it anyway. You're willing to reveal, you know, seemingly most anything um, in effort to like underlight a bigger subject. But I, I think some of it too is, I feel like when I when I write and I have an opinion on the page, like I, <laughs> I always I always like pause and question and like question myself. And I know that you must do that too in a way, which is where the ambivalence comes from. But it seems to me you just have you know, and this is all after editing, and <laughs> it just seems you have a much surer footing around having opinions that may be unpopular in one way or another or writing in a way that may be unpopular or that risks like alienating people or people just looking at it and being like, Oh, he threw it together. Uh, you know, and I feel like for someone almost like fighting Southpaw, right? (laughs) You're willing to take the shots. And it seems to me like you don't question, you don't question the punches. I don't know how much of that to you sounds right. And how much of it is me just, you know, seeing the finished product <laughs> all the time for the so most part. It's fascinating to hear. I mean, I have so many thoughts and it's very, it's to me, tremendously gratifying. It didn't strike me as wildly off the mark, like, oh no, underneath it all, I'm just terribly worried. I'm just not. But um, I mean, I have so many different thoughts to it, but primarily it's just very meaningful and rewarding to hear that. I mean, part of it is simply like, I think I'm almost 30 years older than you Mm -hmm. are. Like I'm six, I'll be 66 in July. Are you, how old are you, Michael? 36. So, you know, so part of it, I've just been doing it a much longer time. And on some level, like it's just who I am. Like, it's sort of like, I mean, I think in a strange way I've boxed myself in. It's almost like each new book almost has to reveal (laughs) more shocking. Like, it's almost like, it's almost like at this point, there's a, (laughs) I mean, I don't consciously think of that, but there's almost like, there's nowhere for me to go except deeper into these (laughs) things, I think. But, Mm -hmm. and then also, I mean, that's interesting what you say. I'm not even aware of some of it in the sense that I wasn't even aware that was true, that this quote style is not quote popular. Like, cause there's plenty of people. I I mean, I don't know. It's popular now. I mean, more popular in our, in our circles. Right. But, you know, I mean, I don't know if some of these books, you know, and I would argue possibly that, reality hunger helped create a culture in which people could read stuff like that you know i think but i think it opened a lot of people's eyes to what was like starting to bubble up and i think it brought it more into the conscious i mean i think i'm and i you know not as much as i used to drop in every once in a while to your email and let you know like i interviewed someone they bring up reality hunger it happens a lot i mean it still happens that's nice that's obviously hugely nice to hear and people still talk about that book being influential to them and they're doing things like you know uh, you know autofocus kind of stuff i know you mean people bring it up without knowing that you and i are friends or sometime Mm -hmm. yeah that's cool that's so i mean obviously that's terribly meaningful that Mm -hmm. a book 
even a book that's only now 12 years old, but like it's hard for any book to have any kind of life at all. And that, and that book like seemed to have done remarkably well for a book, <laughs> a book of its kind. I think partly because in a way it was, for lack of a better word, like polemical in, in terms of, of a small literary world. Like it pissed, off, it pissed a lot of people off, it, like equally excited people or pissed them off, I think. And Right. <laughs> no, I mean, I think the publisher said, you know, if every person who had an opinion on the book actually bought a copy of the book, it would have been the, <laughs> the biggest bestseller in the history of, of Random House. But mm-hmm. um, what is the what is the overwhelming, like is the more traditional thing that sells more copies, that kind of linear memoir? Like what would be that book? I don't read those books. Like, because I'm still aware of people like, I don't know, if, you know, Kanausgaard mm-hmm. or Ben Lerner Maggie Nelson, Rachel Cusk. I mean, I don't know to what degree any of those people are still popular. Perhaps all their stars are fading or not. But aren't some of that? Some of that work is a little collage mm-hmm. I think it's become, with each of those writers, especially, say, Maggie Nelson or or Ben Lerner, they, or even Cusk, I think they got more linear i think mm-hmm. i don't i haven't fall i haven't kept up with all of, of their work yeah i would say like maggie nelson and kind of crossed over from like a purely literary audience into something more commercial but i you know a lot of it's it's hard to say what's popular because i think at this point <laughs> doing a lit mag and indie books in a podcast with writers like i could easily think that you know x writer is a very popular right, but it's only within but our circle, right, sort of like outside of that. Like, are they actually <laughs> like someone to us that we really like? It's Amy Felsman. I right. think. Mm-hmm. Did you have a conversation with her? Yeah, a while ago on the pod. But it, like, in the broader world, you know, obviously she's not a household name, right? But to, and it, yeah, it's, and it's really us, weird. She's a wonderful, yeah. <laughs> vital writer, and that's all that matters. I mean, all that matters to me is feeling. I don't know. It's sort of a sentimental idea, just that I'm not bored, that I'm not. I mean, I feel I think it's like that t- thing when the Times Magazine said, this is really boring. You're trying to sound like um, a profile writer. The, the, we could get anybody to do that. Mm-hmm. Do the thing that you do. I'm like, OK, I could do that in my sleep, you know, like and I feel like that was such a a lesson for me is like, I can't do the other thing, the conventional thing. Mm-hmm. I've written a few novels. I wrote three novels in my 20s. And then, um, you know, some of my stuff has some narrativity to it. Like um, the thing about life is that one day you'll be dead or, you know, this movie, I I mean, I'm not trying to segue into this movie that I co-wrote, but, you know, this movie I, I co-wrote that um, premiered at the Seattle Film Festival, it has a, a nicely, if quietly, building narrative. And I don't know, I try to be, I mean, I'm not against it. I just, right. it's not what I read for. I, I read for... I forget if we've talked about Cheever's posthumously published journals, which I, I, I love so much. And there's a kind of I, – I couldn't imagine a more fulfilling work. It has no plot per se, but it has the immense beating heart of a man's life, trying to figure out his alcoholism, his closeted sexuality, his horrible marriage, and – his trying to find a form for 
his writing. It's just a thrilling book, mm-hmm. but I, I, it's you know, to me, it's such a perfect example where his his stories are really boring with their conventional arcs, whereas his possibly published journals are far and away his best and deepest book. I think for me, I guess I'm similar in the way like what captivates me when I read is someone wrestling with themselves. I think like I'm more interested in inner conflicts than than outer conflicts like i guess i think that's it i don't know and, and it's like i don't know it always depends at it least always it depends. feels Something, real yeah at least i believe it that just seems mm. so but you were about to say maybe not always oh or yeah something. I, you know i think i can read a more conventionally plotted or um narrative piece and still be really drawn into it i'm, I'm that happens totally but i think totally. i think usually I'm not interested in the story itself. Like <laughs> I'm more interested in the grappling between the story, I suppose. I know what you mean. Like so the thing I've experienced, and I know I've said this before, and this maybe sounds a little preachy or repetitious from what I've said before, but it is a feeling I feel in a huge number of novels or even short stories, some movies, some TV shows where you feel like the writer or the creator was this is feeling I get in a lot of novels like the writer began with something really interesting that he or she wanted to explore and that thing gets just buried under Mm. the avalanche of this novelistic mechanism you know there's all this plot and all this setting and all this backstory and all these character development it's like (laughs) physical description description, my god dialogue (laughs) scene and it's like and then basically like every 80 pages or so the writer will briefly remind themselves and the reader what the book is supposed to be about (laughs) and then it's like back we go to this unbelievably tedious Mm. um digging of what feels like a graveyard is just like we're just digging all this dirt, more description, more dialogue, more scene, more character, more plot. It's like you begin with this shiver of insight about, you know, love or death or desire or trauma or something really interesting. And you can feel it. And it's like, my God, does it get buried under what feels like entertainment? Like, essentially a commercial imperative. I need to entertain the reader who I guess digs this stuff, I guess. Mm. I don't though. Like, so I I have this thing, I, I like a book to be about what it's about, you know, in every paragraph. Anything less strikes me as loitering. <laughs> you know, a lot of novels are like, they're just loitering around the material. And it's just like, I mean, I don't know. It's good to talk with you because I just... I do believe this stuff. I'm not like, um, it's like, oh, gee, I wish I'd become, you know, conventional novels or conventional memoirs. I mean, I just, in a way, I tried to become a novelist. Mm -hmm. And I flirted, I guess, at times, sort of, with glimpses of memoir. But, yeah. So, well, tell me more about the new movie you co-wrote. So, it was just at the... Fest, it picked up an award. What, what's mm-hmm. what's the movie called again? It's called I'll Show You Mine. Yeah, and you said it's about an author doing in, in an interview situation. There's a woman, and basically it it premiered at it was you know produced by the Duplass brothers, Mark and Jay Duplass, and then it was directed by Megan Griffiths, who's a director in Seattle, and I co-wrote it 
with Tiffany Loque, who's the wife of James Nugent, who's who's my film editor. And then also a third person was involved in it named Elizabeth Searle, who's mm-hmm. a fiction writer and playwright. So what was that process like? Just passing a document around among yeah. each other for <laughs> like a couple of years, mm-hmm. just constantly. And um, the idea, I think the idea was mine, I think, uh, you know, whereas basically the idea is there's a writer, a woman who's in her late 50s, and she's written about trauma a lot. She's sort of a feminist author, and she's a scholar, a professor, but also a writer. She's just, you know, she's sort of a female version of me in some level. Mm-hmm. But she's a, a writer in her late 50s, and she wants to interview her nephew, who it's her nephew by marriage. But he, in the 80s and early 90s, was the sort of David Bowie figure sort of in America who was very kind of transgender before transgender was as common as it is now. Mm-hmm. And he was this very gender-bending model. So anyway, she wants to write a book about him. And the whole film is nothing but the two of them talking and her interviewing him Hmm. about what happened. But of course, what happens in the course of the weekend is things go badly awry between them. Uh, They get sexual, they get argumentative. Hmm. It's not clear who owns whose narrative. And, you know, I guess, you know, and it just, I'm not sure I'm explaining it well, but it's basically about, you know, the relationship between trauma and psychoanalysis and art. And basically, what do we do with underlying trauma? Because the young man who's maybe in his early 30s just thinks, you know, you basically ignore it and just go on. And the, the woman who's the author thinks that you have to burrow down into it Mm -hmm. so anyway it's i really like the film i think it turned out really well and it went through a lot of different drafts over many years and it was beautifully directed beautifully acted anyway it showed up at seattle film festival and it was a runner-up for best film and i'm hoping that it'll be streaming sometime soon yeah, definitely. Yeah, so you think you're going to keep writing about interviews <laughs> or make it? I know got, what you mean. You got the Lynch one. <laughs> Lynch, you could say um, the very last interview in this. Very one. last interview. Um, I'll show you mine. Then also, in a way, don't you think? I think you're totally wrong. Oh yeah, sort absolutely. Sort of an interview. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, to a degree, the the Salinger book I co-wrote That's what I, was, yeah. was based on interviews that the other mm-hmm. author did of other people for his film. So I'm obviously very interested in the interview. And the way I think of it is it's almost a paradigm for me of the impossibility of human conversation. Like, you know, I'm just so moved by two human beings like you and me trying to talk, Mm -hmm. in this case, over 3,000 miles over Zoom. And, you know, like, there's nothing that you can do but try and connect. But I guess I'm just endlessly moved by the idea of two people trying and inevitably failing to understand each other. Mm-hmm. And I think of the interview, you know, the formalized interview as being this somewhat tragicomic embodiment of human beings trying to understand each other, which is obviously, or not obviously, but it's what I've 
always have written about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we've even talked to in the way that the formal interview or conversation or whatever is like a both a like a performative space and then a really like a deep and meaningful place as well. And it's it's hard to to toggle between those. Like uh, you know, you've done a lot of interviews. I've this is my fifty something interview for this podcast. And I can tell you, like, it's such a strange, it's beautiful and strange. Like, in the hour that I've talked to some people, uh, you know, like, uh, you feel more connected to some than others. Um, you feel like you're friends, like you've known each other. Like, after this, you'll probably be friends. And then it's over. And then what happens? Like, people go back to their lives. That person likely goes, well, that was fun. Thanks for the publicity nice guy and probably moves on with their life and does and and sometimes it's like almost like a breakup like i probably i, I probably think of them more than more than they think of me and you know but like, you're pro- i'm sure people are struck by that it's not just one more interview you're obviously hugely insightful in ways oh, that the 99% of interviewers aren't going to be but yeah cuz you're you know you're an artist in the field you're not just like some some radio guy who hasn't even even read the book or anything right yeah but you know you have conversations with people that sometimes go deeper than anyone you talk to I love you know, totally your normal agree life. You've captured it, it very well. On some level, it's this rather boring performative space in which some people are just doing their shtick. Then on the other hand, it can be this amazing place to connect on a very deep level. And it's like, I mean, you've ca- that's exactly it. And I think it's why I've written about it so mm-hmm. much. And partly that both of my parents were journalists. So the whole interviewing process... I've seen from a very early age and I was a journalist in high school mm-hmm. and for college a little bit. And like the whole interviewing thing interests me a lot. I'm not sure why other than the things we've talked about. Yeah. I think it's like access. Well, and you know what also it's another, it's a form of autobiography, you know, totally. And I think that's probably what maybe <laughs> what drives us into. Like, tell like, me I, how, so how is it a form of autobiography? Well, one, cause like you're usually asking someone to express something about their life or their worldview. Even, even if you're asking them to talk about craft, I mean, they're expressing a worldview. Totally. And then, you know, like a lot of the times the interviewers, it's not autobiographical to the interviewer a lot of it, but a lot of the times it can be like sure. sometimes people ask me a question <laughs> and, right. and sometimes I keep it in, I keep it in the edit, but, um, yeah. Okay. So you have all right, new co-written movie, um, the collaborative film we talked about already briefly. You, oh, you mean, um, how I, do you know what yeah, you believe? How do you, how do you know what you believe? And then there is Nick and Rachel's film of, um, the very last yes, interview. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, one thing that's interesting about the book is that a year before it came out, there was a short film adaptation of it. That was wild. <laughs> Which you never really... <laughs> that's something you that's normally rarity, hear about. Yeah. And now you have to republicize the movie now that <laughs> the book's out or something. I know. I think, I think I forgot if you what you thought of it. I really like the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard for me to watch because it came out when I was pretty melancholy and the film kind of triples down on the darker themes of the book. Mm-hmm. It's really quite harrowing. But anyway, I thought they did a lovely job with it. But then, as you know, I'm also working on, I mean, a big project I'm working on is, uh, well, I'm working on how do you know what you believe? I guess we talked about that a bit, about 
the the whole notion of how we got to a point that truth is a truth and belief are sort of fungible commodities in contemporary Western civilization. It's rather this ambitious movie, and we're close to a rough cut on it. And then I'm 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 working on this long book, or I I've been working on it for a couple of years, and I'm still only maybe halfway through a rough draft called. Um, all the best stories are mm-hmm. true. Alt doc as suicide prevention hotline. It's the <laughs> sort which I like. It's sort of this meditation on why I love mm-hmm. documentary films and how they've, in a way, saved my life. I they've taught me how to live and how to create art. And I I read about four hundred of these films and try and point out how great they are and how much I love what they embody and. Anyway, I'm hoping rather grandiosely that it'll be kind of do for Doc Film what Reality Hunger did for mm-hmm. the S-safe or the blur genre thing. Mm-hmm. But I'll see. Are you thinking of, well, maybe it's putting the cart before the horse, I guess, but are you thinking about doing your own alt doc about <laughs> your book about your book about alt doc is that scott <laughs> that's a great idea maybe i'll have nick and rachel do the yeah. alt doc on the alt doc yeah. i mean i don't know I, I don't know what that would be i mean it would be it has to be almost this montage like um christian markley's the clock which is you know this 24-hour movie of, about time where he pulls thousands upon thousands of clips from other people's movies I guess I could try and take, you know, clips from all of these movies and push them together. It's not a bad idea, Michael. (laughs) You can be the executive producer. So are there anything in that book, the alt doc book? So I think if I'm right, it's like you structure it where like you go through those kind of movies that like those seminal films for you and write about them in a way like criticism as a form of autobiography, I suppose. Totally. Um, do you also write about docs that you don't like or don't work? Quite a lot. I mean, I, to my surprise, sometimes I'll, I'll rewatch a film that I thought of myself as liking. And then for some reason I can't get traction on what I liked about it. And I, I go into kind of a deep antipathy toward it or I'll include a film that somebody else liked. Then I'll, push back. And I think I've done about 40 chapters, about 40 movies, about 400 pages. And so I would say there's probably 30 films I like so far and probably five to 10 that I've, I quarrel with. Mm. The ones that you like, what do they tend to have in common? And then the ones that you don't like, is Mm. there something in particular that draws you off of those? God, that's so interesting. Um, I'd have to study it, but what comes to mind is the movies I like are willing to implicate the narrator or the author or the auteur or the cine essayist in a way that feels exciting and and dangerous and discomforting. And I think the films I don't like, you know, big surprise, have a kind of moral grandiosity and a kind of easy, comfortable complacency. And I'm like, no thanks. So, um, I think that strikes me as what it is. But also, what under underneath these films, I'm I'm running these rather constant narrative threads about my childhood, mm. psychoanalysis, my marriage, uh, 
a very intense relationship I had after mm. my marriage. Oh, so it's um, all going in there, huh? So totally. the things that kind of guided you to write the very last interview, but you don't explicitly go into, you're actually going into them? That's a good way to say it. Mm. And the challenge will be to keep all these threads going. And so it'll really have, I hope, these real narrative pulleys, you know, coming through. I think it's a, it's a big juggling act. It's, comp it's a complicated book. I'm hoping it has some real narrative oomph. I mean, not in some big way, like, you know, like it's not going to be like who's, you know, it's not going to be like, uh, I don't know who those people are who write conventional memoirs that are very commercial. Like, mm -hmm. that's just not the way I write. But it will have some some real stories in it, I think. Mm. Very intense book so far. All right. That was my conversation with David Shields. Go get a copy of the very last interview from NYRB and look for the film I'll Show You Mine when it eventually gets streaming. If you'd like to check out the film version of the very last interview, you can find that free on Vimeo or linked over on davidshields.com. And don't forget to check out autofocuslit.com slash books sometime. Our next book is Emily Costa's Until It Feels Right, which the author wrote while doing intensive cognitive behavioral therapy for obsessive compulsive disorder last year. Yeah, go check it out. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.